Welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Chris. So, we've mentioned that Morgan is crafty, but I feel like some crafts are particularly relevant to your life, maybe more so than some others. I know you're an art historian, so... Maybe you can tell us about a craft you care about related to history? Yes, so today we're going to do a topic that is dissertation adjacent for me, and we're going to be talking about how textile production has been used historically as a way to evoke an idealized past for political and social gains. For much of that history, these modes of production have been intrinsically linked to gender and supported domestic production rather than increasingly industrial production methods. Cool. So, uh, what kind of historical areas are we talking about here? So, we're going to start in my area of study, which is uh, the early Roman Empire. We're going to talk a little bit about the Augustan moral reforms. Wait, wait, wait. You can't tell me what the Augustan moral reforms is without telling me who this Augustus is. Right. So Augustus was the first emperor of Rome, which means that he had a pretty big social change that he was managing. And And prior to that, there were non-emperor governance structures? Yeah, so... Really early on, there were kings, and the kings were despots, and there was a social revolution, and that led to the Roman Republic, which was distinctively not kings. And then there was a very long period of civil wars. Augustus's uncle, Julius Caesar, tried to take power and become a dictator for life, and um, that did not end well for him. He ended up being stabbed by a bunch of senators and Uh, dying. I think I've read a play about that at some point. Yeah, Shakespeare was fond. So Augustus, when he became emperor and basically created this new political position, was trying to avoid getting stabbed by a bunch of senators on the Senate floor by trying to take some different social route. And this route is where those moral reforms come in, I assume. Yeah, so the years of civil war led to a decrease in the patrician population, and Julius Caesar tried to deal with that decrease in basically elite citizens by inviting elites from elsewhere in the empire, like from Gaul, into the patrician ranks, which did not sit well with the Roman senators. So Augustus decided to take a different route, which was to promote an increase in patrician population by promoting an increase in births. So this is basically the Roman boomers. Yes, this is the Roman boomers. We need to repopulate specifically the higher echelons of society because those civil wars were those higher echelons of society killing each other to gain power. The moral reforms were laws that incentivized women to have multiple children, and in return for having multiple children and increasing the patrician population, they were rewarded more freedom than typical Roman women had. Yeah, so along with this was a campaign to return to old-fashioned values. So... Uh, is this where Augustus was trying to uh, 
restore the greatness of Rome as a political tool of some sort? Yes, political tools have been using this as a crutch for quite a while. It's an ancient technique. I see what you did there. So give me some examples of uh, what these moral reforms might have been and how could they relate to textiles? So one example uh, related to textiles Uh, In his biography of Augustus, the historian Suetonius says that the emperor Augustus bragged that his wife, daughter, and granddaughters made all of his clothing by hand, which at this point in the Roman Empire, it's very unlikely that patrician women would have been doing all of this labor by themselves. Um, So we have very little... uh, historical records talking about what women did with their lives because the people who wrote historical records were all men. But we do have some moral reforms from less than a hundred years later that talk about how no Roman women are doing this job on their own. They're letting their slaves and servants do it all and they don't do anything. We also have records from the household of Livia, which is Augustus's wife, who was supposedly making all of his clothing by herself, um, from after his death, that include several servants and slaves employed specifically for textile production. So that implies that within the imperial household, it wasn't just his wife, daughter, and granddaughters that were creating his clothes. There was likely his wife, daughter, and granddaughters supervising slave production. And and who is Livia in this context? Uh, I believe I said Livia was Augustus's wife. Oh, okay. So that... the first empress of Rome. Okay, that might have come up. I miss saying sometimes. Um, okay, so... That makes sense. So just to repeat this back, basically, Augustus is trying to give this sense of, don't you remember how in the past things were really great when you weren't alive to be able to know whether or not it was better? And uh, so let's evoke those memories. Um, but And I'm going to try to show you just how much I'm in line with that thing in order to inspire others to be in line with it as well. Is that about right? Yeah. And without getting into too much detail about specific stories, during this early empire and when Augustus is establishing the empire, we also have a resurgence of myths and pseudo-historical myths that center around women and textile production. And we'll touch on those at a later date. Yeah, so I'm going to stop you right there, because I know this is related to your dissertation, which you are in the process of finishing, and uh, we will talk about that presumably when when that's out the door. But for right now, I want to hear some other historical examples. Uh, Specifically, I'm an American, so I want to hear some American history. Are there American stories that uh, um, have similar kinds of mythologies? Indeed, there are. So, leading up to the American Revolution, the British government increasingly taxed colonists for imported goods. As a result, there was an effort to decrease the colony's reliance on British imports. So, is uh, that one of the reasons why in uh, here in America, uh, coffee is a national drink instead of tea? Yeah, but that was one of the imports that the British were heavily taxing in the colonies. There, you may recall a specific tea party. Right. Okay. And that nostalgic past of that later as well. Yes. 
Another key factor in this was a return to homespun cloth in lieu of fabrics and clothing imported from or through London. Wait, what does homespun mean here? Homespun means literally spun at home. Okay, just the way it sounds. Great. Exactly, just as it says on the tin. So this movement had patriotic women spinning and weaving their own cloth at home, a practice which was decidedly out of practice by that time. This cloth was reportedly lauded for its imperfections because it showed that you were a patriotic American. America. So despite the hype behind homespun, it was ultimately an impractical thing to use for all of your textile needs. And merchants' records and archaeological evidence suggest that a vast quantity of cloth and clothing continued to be imported. So I have a sense that uh, maybe this isn't the only former British colony that has some sort of textile political story of note. Yes. In the lead up to the Indian Revolution, India likewise went through its own homespun movement, led by Mahatma Gandhi. While India's textile industry had historically supplied British cloth prior to the Industrial Revolution, the cheap machine-made fabrics produced in Britain eventually crushed the traditional Indian economy. In addition to loss of traditional techniques, by the early 20th century, India was reliant on imported English fabrics. Ooh, here's something I actually know about. I'm aware that key to Gandhi's success in leading India to independence was employing dedicated, non-violent techniques that asserted the right for Indian citizens to not rely on their colonialist overlords, even when self-production was strictly forbidden. So, I mean, the same thing ended up kind of tying in with the Salt March as well. But I'm, I'm guessing that's how it ties in here. Yeah, Gandhi himself began spinning khadi, which is homespun fabric in India, and encouraged others to do so as well, using the Shakri spinning wheel that became iconic of this nationalist movement. However, the cost of producing and using khadi was prohibitive, and despite Gandhi's protests, many weavers had to rely on mill-spun yarn in order to survive. Unlike the earlier movements discussed, khadi was produced by men and women in accordance to Gandhi's other teachings that dismantling other prescribed roles within colonial society and the traditional caste system would help abolish the colonial system. So I'd really like to come back to this because I think that in general, the free and open source software world doesn't have enough appreciation for active nonviolent social movements and how they can apply to our work. But I feel like maybe expanding on that is some future episode material. So for the moment, let's move on to something maybe also politically relevant to the idea of self-reliance, but also a little bit different. It would be almost negligent to discuss political movements around traditional textile production and not at least mention the arts and crafts movement. Ooh, is this the arts and crafts episode yet? This anti-industrial movement developed as a critique of the lack of quality and innovation in decorative and fine arts as a result of industrial development. It advocated specifically for a return to antiquated techniques and craftsmanship in design fields, including textile production and embroidery. Okay, cool overview but I guess it's not the arts and crafts episode quite yet then. But something we already talked about in a previous episode was how the arts and crafts movement didn't quite live up to all its goals. And I'm guessing the sense that the reason for this is kind of one of those things that happens over and over again in history, maybe especially post-industrialization. So how about let's continue to dig into that. 
Yeah, so there are many production problems uh, with making handcrafts in an industrial world. So maybe to get into that, we should really try to understand the process. And to do that, we should really start out from scratch as much as possible from raw materials. Now we could go really from scratch and do the Carl Sagan, make an apple pie from scratch. First, you got to create the universe and then you need to do all this stuff, including evolving apples. But I think we can assume that we've already evolved and domesticated some animals and plants that are relevant to materials we're going to need for clothing. So once we're at that stage, Could you walk us through what that process is? Yeah, so you're correct. There are definitely plant-based methods to cloth production, specifically like linen and hemp have been used for uh, textiles. But let's go with wool, since it's the easiest and most historically relevant to my research. Okay, from sheep to sweater, let's go. So we're going to go through the stages of production. Okay, I've got my sheep. Uh, The sheep's sitting there. Um, I probably I need to be able to get that stuff off of the sheep, right? Yep. So you've got to shear the sheep first step. Okay. So I shear that stuff right off of there and I've got a messy bunch of sheep fur. Yep. So the sheep fleece ends up carrying all of the stuff that the sheep get into. So typically once you shear the sheep, you have a fleece of wool fiber that is covered in dirt, grime, and feces. Not sheep fur, then? Not sheep fur. So you have to wash the fiber. Okay. You wash the fiber. Now that it's washed and not covered in feces, which is generally how you like your fiber to be, what do you have to do next? So then you have to process the fiber for spinning. And there's a couple of different ways you could do this. One is combing, which uses combs with long metal teeth to arrange the fibers so that they're all facing in the same direction, so parallel to each other. And this produces spun thread that is thinner, cleaner, and stronger. Is it too far away from me combing my hair in the morning? It's actually fairly similar to you combing your hair in the morning, except that the comb has metal teeth that are between three and six inches long, and they are very pointy. Okay, all right. So what else is there? So the other option is carding, and this uses... Well, originally, the hand-done method would be using paddles with a grid of shorter, thinner bristles. Think like your modern dog brushes. And this you use to prepare the fibers into kind of a web. So the fibers are not all facing in the same direction, but it's still controlled so that it's easier to spin. And this produces a thicker, kind of bushier thread. So anytime you see little bits of wool sticking out of your yarn. Okay, so we got to comb our sheep fur or we've got to brush it. Yeah. Okay, so that sounds like a lot of extra work. Do I have to do that? Well, you probably want to because both of these processes remove most of the remaining impurities from the fiber before you spin it. So you still probably got some sheep poop and... uh like straw in there and you you don't want that in there basically you don't want that in there the more things you can do to process it the more of that you're going to get out before you are trying to spin it by hand and i'm guessing also like combing my hair in the morning it also means that it's going to have less knots in it yes that as well okay great all right so what's next so then you form the fiber into a roving, a rolling, or maybe you just dress your distaff. It really depends on what method of spinning you're using. Wait, wait, wait. 
Who's Rover? What are they rolling? And with which staff? Distaff? So I could go into a very lengthy, detailed description of all of these things, but it would not come out very well over podcast because you can't see my hand gestures or the images on the slide that I would be doing if I was doing this as a lecture in a class. So I'm just going to say that these are all methods of controlling and maintaining the unspun fiber so that it doesn't get in the way of the fiber that you're spinning or so that it doesn't get messy like you brush your hair in the morning but then by the end of the day it's tangled again. Right. Okay. So I've got all my clean fiber stuff and it's all nicely organized to what? So am I just going to start knitting right now or? So we're not quite there yet. So the next process is to spin the fiber. You can do that using a drop spindle, a supported spindle, or a spinning wheel. So I know what a spinning wheel is because that's the thing I touch to fall asleep for a hundred years if I want to take a good nap. But uh, what's a drop spindle or a supported spindle? So before the invention of the spinning wheel, which there's various types of spinning wheels that originate from different areas, but before that, drop spindles and supported spindles are basically hand spindles. So you don't need any mechanical technology to do it. It's basically a stick and then something weighted on the bottom, usually a whorl, but sometimes it's just the stick is thicker at the bottom. And a drop spindle, you suspend in the air and spin it while you're spinning. Whereas a supported spindle is more like the Russian model, where you have some sort of bowl or divot or something that you put the bottom of your spindle in to hold it in place while you're spinning it. I like how you said you spin it while you're spinning, and that's technically correct because this is the spinning proportion of the entire thing, right? Yes. So also a funny thing, if you ever end up hanging out with Morgan in person, there's a strong chance that you're going to see her spinning on one of these drop spindles because um, it's something that she does to pass the time. And it, these things are pretty easy to make, right? And in fact, yeah. they, they even, my understanding from talking to a certain Morgan who's sitting next to me is that these things show up a lot in history and maybe in a lot of places that don't, don't even talk to each other. Yeah, so... The spindle, I have just described two different variants, and it's a parallel technology that pops up in different places that have no communication. And it's very similar in most of the places that it pops up. So you have a shaft, so basically a stick, and then, as I said, usually you have a whorl, which is typically a small cylindrical object that is made out of something heavier. So it could be made out of wood, just thicker, or it could be made out of stone or glass or something along those lines. And this basic technology can be found archaeologically in South America, in the Mediterranean, in China, and it's in almost the same form. So it's kind of like convergent evolution where you have fins show up in fish, and then you have fins show up in a variety of other things, even though they didn't actually start from the same root, just because it's kind of like, I guess, a good idea to have fins uh, when you want to swim around. So is it, it's similar to convergent evolution, but with crafts, basically. Yeah, it's basically like you don't have to reinvent the wheel because it's such a basic technology. So 
But I love reinventing that thing. Why are we talking about shaving sheep instead of shaving yaks? Uh Uh-huh. So now we have thread or yarn or something. So are we ready to go? Yes. So now we can create the fabric. So there's multiple ways of creating fabric. You could weave it. You could knit it. You could crochet it or use knoll bending. These are all slightly different technologies that I'm not going to get into too much detail about on this podcast. Okay, cool. So I guess whatever this is going to look like at this point now depends on the color of sheep. So if I have a white sheep, it would be white fabric. And if I have a black sheep, it would be black fabric. And if I have a purple sheep, I'd have purple fabric. So where can I get a purple sheep? So purple sheep don't exist. You're going to have to dye the fiber somehow. And this step can be done at multiple stages. So it could be done after the fiber is processed, but before you spin it. It could be done after the thread has been spun, but before you weave it. It could be done after you've got fabric made. Or sometimes it's even done after the entire garment has been made. So can I just dye the sheep in the wool? Not recommended. They don't like it. Okay. All right, so are we done? At this point, do I have a sweater or a t-shirt now? So it depends on what method you're using. If you were creating your fabric by knitting or crocheting, then yes, you probably do have a sweater by now. If you were weaving, so basically you end up with a rectangular piece for the most part then, then you would still need to cut out the pattern of your garment and then sew it together. Okay, cool. And if it was a tie-dye t-shirt, we might even do the dyeing at this stage. Yes. Okay, so I guess we've got ourselves some kind of garment now. That seemed like a lot of work. Yes. In pre-industrial societies, all of this labor was done by hand or with the assistance of human-powered machines like spinning wheels. So just how much sheep to sweater have you personally done? So this is one of the times when we should talk about the post-industrial or industrial society we live in, I have not done that entire process. So one, I have no sheep, and typically people don't like it if you just go up and shear their sheep. So I have never sheared a sheep. I have helped clean and wash a fleece before. I have carded, but I haven't combed. And I have spun uh, using a drop spindle. I have not spun on a spinning wheel, mainly because in the Roman Empire, which is the area I study, the spinning wheel hadn't been invented yet, so I haven't learned how to spin on a spinning wheel yet. I've done some weaving, I've done knitting and crocheting and sewing. Okay. I have not done any dyeing. Okay. And also, you've done most of these steps together at one point related to your academic studies, right? Yes, so there is a section in my dissertation on uh, on experimental archaeology, which was the recreation of textile production from the Roman Empire. So some of these processes are difficult to do in the home. Yeah, I imagine they require quite a few uh, tools and materials sitting around, and you could possibly even uh, poison somebody, for instance. Yeah, so funny story. We were visiting someone who does textile production in their home. Yep. And uh, I offered to cook dinner and they accepted and I cooked the dinner. And then it turned out that they had an entirely separate set of pots and pans that were for dyeing wool. 
And they hadn't told Chris ahead of time. So it was on the stove. I used those and cooked the dinner, uh, sampled it before I was ready to serve it to the family. In which case, at that point, I was told, don't use that. And at that point, they were like, oh, don't worry. It's all natural dyes and materials. And And the response to that is, well, lead is natural. Yeah. So uh, we looked at the tins and they did say, do not ingest. Warning, call poison control. So we did. And it turned out the things that I ingested were not great to consume, but like not going to kill you in the amount that I consumed them. So so as you can probably tell, Chris survived. Yeah. But uh, another one of those goofy Chris stories. But Well, and that's just one of the reasons why most people don't dye fabric in their kitchens because it's typically a place that you prepare food and a lot of dyes are incredibly toxic. Yep. Cool. So now I know how to do everything. After listening to this single podcast episode, I'm an expert. So why doesn't everybody just make all their sweaters and t-shirts from home then? Well, in industrial societies, movements that like the ones we've talked about today have often fizzled out because they are cost prohibitive to make any of these things by yourself. And anyone who does textile crafts for a hobby can tell you that buying materials to make clothing is typically more expensive than just buying ready-made clothes. What was previously cheap and what's expensive to acquire and perform often invert after that task's automation. Yeah, and I mean, only increasingly so, too. So my mom talked to me about how when she was a teenager, she used to make her own clothes. And in fact, that was the main way that she could afford it and her family would allow her to justify it, right? And even when I was growing up, that was something that my mom would do, but kind of decreasingly as we grew up. And nowadays, it seems we've reached a point of in society with disposable consumerism slash planned obsolescence even, where it's often more expensive as a person in the U.S. to certainly make and maybe even in depending on what the issue is, repair your clothing than to just go out and get something new, at least, you know, in the Western world, um, yeah. for whatever that means. So my mother also made a lot of our clothing when we were kids. And unfortunately, by the time I reached high school, I realized that Pretty in Pink lied to me And that it's not actually cheaper to be a fashionista in high school by making all of your own clothing, because buying all of the materials is actually rather expensive. Yep. So the industrialization of textiles is fairly interesting, though. I understand that it even has some tie-ins to the origins of modern computing. Yes, but again, we're stepping on future podcast topics. Okay, okay. So then what I want to know is, how did society manage to sustain textile production pre-industrialization if it was so much work? The short answer is slavery, or other forms of low-cost labor. If the process is labor-intensive, that isn't as expensive to produce if you don't pay your labor. That's not great we do not want to get excited about or advocate slavery in any form ever so hopefully there's some other non-problematic ways that textile production was sustained pre-industrialization at least in again the western world in quotes whatever that means so one other way that textile production was done within the home was based off of the gendered division of labor If women remain in the home, then it's easier to devote time to labor-intensive projects such as sewing and baking from scratch. 
So is that where the word spinster comes from? Yeah, so the term spinster emerged from a society where spinning thread to be sold out for production was one of the only job options for respectable women of a certain social status to perform where she could support herself if she wasn't married and her family couldn't or wouldn't support her. And this is because it could be done within the home and then sold to manufacturers so she didn't have to go out and work potentially with men. Yeah, so I'm guessing why that whole you got this option because you didn't get married and have other time that you were spending on taking care of children or governing a household or whatever is the reason why spinster we historically and even contemporarily tend to hear it as an insult. Yes, definitely. It was an insult against women who couldn't get a husband. Though um, we certainly shouldn't pass up mentioning such documents as In Defense of the Spinster, which is a 1918 article from Harper's Magazine. And so this is an example of like many other terms that were initially derogatory. The term spinster was eventually reclaimed by women who didn't want to get married and viewed that as okay and not a social degradation. Yeah, and it's definitely an article that being read today has some of its ups and downs that we would read it from this point in history, but, you know, also still is kind of impressive if you're considering the context of the other articles being published in Harper's at that time. So uh, I think it's definitely worth looking at and reading and we'll link to it in the show notes. Anyway, I'm not that exuberant that our answers to how it was supported seems to point to slavery and social disparities of gender, so... Yeah, like many things in history, it's not necessarily great, and I think it's worth arguing that if we returned to a pre-industrial setting, that doesn't mean we'd have to rely on that regressive of social structures to support pre-industrial textile production. Yeah, and as I'm sure we'll get into in a future episode, in terms of women's roles in textile production, there's a lot of positive things that aren't covered in most historical accounts, arguably also for sexist reasons. Yes, that may be very relevant to my interest in research. Um, And also, we should identify that society was structured to support this system. So, in a way that it isn't now. People living on farms or in cottages in those periods of history often owned their own sheep, and therefore they had a homegrown supply of wool to work with. And now, most wool is used for industrial production, so any wool that's available to purchase for hobby spinning is part of a luxury market and therefore very expensive. Cool. So we're talking about history and acknowledging that it's easy to get caught up in nostalgia, even though that might mean ignoring inconvenient details of the past. And that seems like a good tie-in to contemporary positive and maybe even sometimes hyper-nostalgic tie-ins to textile production for political and social purposes. Yeah, so let's walk through some of these modern examples. So one would be yarn bombing, which is the practice of wrapping mundane objects in an urban environment, such as stop signs or door handles or stuff like that, in knitting or crochet or something similar in order to put a piece of comfort and individuality and maybe nostalgia into the cold, impersonal, modern urban environment. I might make my mug extra cozy even if it's for tea like a tea cozy yes okay cool 
So it's also hard to not think about all of those cat ears that appeared after the 2016 election in the United States. Yeah, so the Pussy Hat Project began as a protest symbol following the election of Donald Trump, particularly associated with the Women's March. That project provided patterns for a simple cat hat that could be crocheted, knit, or sewn to be worn in solidarity of women offended by the sexist rhetoric of the incumbent president. So yeah, I feel like it's also worth mentioning that um, since those comments came from Donald Trump specifically mentioning non-consensual violations of a specific type of genitalia, as applied to women who have that kind of genitalia. There have been some criticisms of that imagery being somewhat exclusionary towards trans people and the ways in which they may have or may not have that genitalia, not necessarily being on that gender binary. And we wanted to acknowledge that, maybe even we'll link to in the show notes to both the march, some of the ideas behind it, and those uh, counter statements. So along those lines, uh, I'm sure there are other things. Yeah, so another specifically uh, American Current Events project is the Tiny Pricks Project, which has contributors from around the world stitching quotes from Donald Trump into textiles, so embroidery and cross-stitch in particular, in ways to highlight the sexism using a traditionally female form of expression. Yep. So also due to the lack of personal protective equipment in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we've been seeing a lot of people making masks lately. Crafters across the globe have dipped into their quilting stashes to make face masks for at-risk members of the population, essential workers, or just everyday people who need to go to the grocery store. Yeah, so many people have publicly shared patterns to make homemade masks in the face of this, Um, Specifically, the pattern that I use, for example, was designed by our friend Dan Gilbert and released under uh, Creative Commons uh, share-alike license. Yep. And it's linked in the show notes. Dan Gilbert, who made the pattern, is really cool and has all sorts of other wonderful, interesting free culture things that you can find on their website as well. And we really encourage you exploring their site. We also joined a mutual aid network for our neighborhood, and using this pattern, myself and another woman were making masks to distribute to our local community. Yep, and in our case, the mutual aid network really was pretty simple, basically just a mailing list, but it's nice. We were able to just make take some of the masks you made and walk them over and drop them off at somebody else's house um, who said they needed them, and uh, yeah, helping each other can be just as simple as that. So there's also been a spike, uh, once they had time to react, in online retailers selling masks at highly inflated rates. And this fits into a historical pattern where in periods of crisis, it tends to lead to greater need and greater contributions to community resources by individuals, whereas larger commercial interests simultaneously take advantage of that need. Yeah, but... Are we also completely against people selling things? I mean, we're not against people being paid for their work. And I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, of course not. People should definitely be paid for their work. And there's definitely something to be said for smaller smaller producers selling masks on, say, Etsy, for example. Yeah. And though I think Etsy also feels like it has kind of a tie-in in terms of the arts and crafts, both positives and negatives of that movement, right? In terms of the way that people 
are able to tie into a nostalgic past and maybe actually reclaim some crafting, but also possibly it having some elitist overtones as well. Yeah, definitely. And also, so initially you couldn't get reusable masks, which is why we saw so many people step in and make their owns in the community when there was no commercial way to acquire things so you know there might be even an element to now that we can buy textile masks online now that cheap ones are available to purchase whether or not we choose to make that decision kind of maybe illuminating in some sort of way i mean for example we've continued to buy t-shirts but not masks so why do you think that is well i think there is a message of solidarity to making your own mask or donating them back to the community or to your friends even if that's partly symbolic um and also you talk about us continuing to buy t-shirts not masks uh we haven't actually bought any clothing recently and i have sewn us both skirts from hand lately that's true well that seems to be a good place to wrap up for the day yep i agree though i do have the sense that this isn't the last we're hearing of textiles on this show You mean like how you already performed generally acknowledged as bad podcasting form by pre-announcing future episode topics that we haven't recorded and haven't set a timeline to record? Yeah, like that. Okay, well then, thanks everybody. Yeah, see you next time. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project and is waved into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community, hash Foss and Crafts, on irc.freenode.net. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free and stay crafty. Haha. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with a very artificial haha. You made it look like it was supposed to be artificial. Haha. <laughs> 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 I don't know how you want me to say ha-ha. You can can ha-ha however you want. I will take whatever ha-ha you give me. Uh, I just observed it. Okay. Um, We are serious people.